0: Hello and welcome to Hipcast, Hip Tips, sharing tips from experts in hip fracture care. My name is Jackie Close. I'm an orthogeriatrician working at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney and I co-chair the Australian New Zealand Hip Fracture Registry. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land I'm based on and share my acknowledgements to elders past, present and emerging. Today I have my colleague and geriatrician Dr. Sarah Hurring with me from Christchurch um, in New Zealand and Sarah is here to share our hip tips from geriatrics. Sarah has kindly agreed to share her top tips for getting older people with a hip fracture safe and effectively through the hip fracture journey. So let's get started on that journey Um, and Sarah we'll we'll start with the period from presentation to surgical procedure itself. So give us some insights into your thinking and your processes for looking after hip fractures in that period.
1: Yeah great thanks Jackie. Um, I think it's really important right at the beginning to be thinking about the bigger picture for this patient so rather than honing in too quickly on the hip fracture itself. But having to think about where the patients come from, where they are in their life stage and their life trajectory, uh, because even at this early stage, it can be quite um, helpful to start thinking about what the discharge planning might be like. Um, So if I give you some examples, um, no no hip fracture is the same. Uh, So you, you may have a patient who's quite fit and fallen over while tramping. They're likely to be able to go home straight away with some physiotherapy input at home. Uh, or you may have a patient who's falling uh, fairly frequently, lost balance at home. Uh, they're likely to be able to benefit from inpatient rehabilitation and get started on some strength and balance retraining fairly quickly. Um, or you may have a patient who's at the end of their life, very frail, living in high level care, Uh, And it's probably going to be most important for them to get back to to where the staff who know them well. Uh, So to be able to try and get that idea, it's important to listen to um, families. So when you see a patient, uh, they they can look the same in a hospital gown, uh, um, uh, overwhelmed by what's happened to them. So it's important to to hear from the families about what what their, their relative, their loved one, is normally like. And I think doing that preparation work up front uh, can help lead the team to the direction of travel that's likely to happen after the surgery uh, and, therefore, hopefully um, reduce any delays in decision-making that may happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree, Sarah. That, I mean, the investment up front in terms of the time you spend with the person and their family is really valuable, I guess, From my perspective, um, that at the very beginning is that communication and managing the patient and family expectations right from the outset. They're about to start a journey, a journey that we take people through every day, but for them it's the first time they've been on that journey. So talking them through right at the very beginning what to expect, how long till surgery, what will happen the day after surgery, how long will I be in the acute hospital for, will I need rehabilitation, they're the sorts of things we do and know every day. Um, so being able to communicate that to patients right at the very beginning of that journey, um, I think is really um, important. Uh, so thanks for that tip. What about timing of surgery? I guess um, I might start this one. It's, it's really we shouldn't be delaying surgery. There are very, very few reasons to delay surgery. If you've got theatre access Issues You need to get them um, sorted. And I guess the other tip that I would um, offer would be have pathways or protocols for managing um, anticoagulation. So in this day and age, we are seeing more and more people on particularly the DOACs. Um, We need plans in place so that surgery is not unnecessarily delayed so warfarin, there's no excuse for delaying surgery and you vitamin K. And if your INR is not less than 1.6, then you should be using prothrombin X if the anaesthetist or the surgeon feels that they want that. And for the DOACs, um, a good resource to look at is the Association of Anaesthetists of Great Britain and Ireland. They produced a document in 2020 um, which talks through some of the uh, recommendations around how to proceed with people on Doax. But essentially, it's two half-lives. And so the most common drugs we see in Australia, I don't know what it's like um, in New Zealand, the two most common ones for us are rivaroxaban and apixaban. We still see some people on dabigatran. But essentially, you get on with the procedure after two half-lives if their um, creatinine clearance is greater than 30 and if the crackling clearance isn't greater than 30, you can think about doing an apixaban or a rivaroxaban level. Uh, but, you know, when you look at the registry data, there are still too many delays from anticoagulation and hospitals not having protocols and pathways um, in place. So, so that would be my tip for making sure there are no delays. What about you, Sarah?
1: Yeah, and no, I absolutely agree. Um, uh, as you say, there's very few medical reasons to delay surgery. Uh, and I think it, often the geriatricians have a really important advocacy role um, and some of us describe it as nagging, <laughs> um, but often it's nagging that's actually you know, really important for the family and the patient. Um, you know, the frail patients with dementia who have a current delirium, uh, you know, they're really the priority patients um, to, to get going and get, uh, um, get them uh, operated on so we can start getting it up Um, Patients with delirium, it's very hard to manage that until they've had their surgery. Um, I think one of the, inevitably though, there are delays for some patients um, and we need to avoid those as much as possible. Um, But I get very concerned about the patients who are starved for long periods of time on subsequent days. Uh, And it's very important to avoid that practice of starving somebody just in case they might make the list that day. Um, So I think it's important for teams to have really good communication between theatre and the ward and the nurses so that if somebody's surgery has been put off for the day that you can get on and feed them. Um, I think it's also important when people are are being, are nil by mouth, um, that they've got some fluids up so uh, we're not running into dehydration before theatre. So there are things that we can do to look after and take care of our patients well they are hopefully waiting a very short period of time for the surgery
0: yeah i agree and there's there's no calories in salt water so these people are are losing are losing muscle mass etc while they're they're waiting all right so that message is pretty clear we're we're all on board in terms of no no delays unless they're absolutely necessary and there are very few reasons to delay these days so moving on to those initial few days after um, surgery, Sarah, um, top tips for the first few days? Yeah, so I think
1: uh, managing pain is really important. So the whole idea of doing the surgery quickly so we can get people up and moving, people are sore, they're not going to want to do that. Uh, and they're not going to be very happy when the physio comes to get them up. Uh, this is a group of patients who don't manage very well with um, as required medication. So they're either um, uh, don't want to bother the nurse and ask for pain relief or are cognitively impaired and unable to process that they need to ask. And so my practice is to, is to have patients on regular uh, low-dose um, opiates to, to make sure that we've got good coverage of pain relief. Uh, people often worry that, you know, morphine, oxycodone, other opiates will, um, you know, there's a risk of delirium, which there is. Um, but we also know that pain is a big driver for delirium too. So I think it's about getting the balance right. Um, for patients, perhaps a couple of days down the track, really getting into more of a rehab phase. I think it's worth thinking about the timing of pain relief. So, uh, um A typical timing would be 8 o'clock in the morning, but by then a patient's already been helped to get up to go to the toilet, sat in a chair for their breakfast. Uh, So, so, uh, you know, times where it's really good to have some pain relief on board. So people who are struggling with pain, I will move their morning um, dose of analgesia to about 6.30 in the morning, so it's on board when they start getting going for their day. Um, The other thing I found helpful for people struggling with pain is actually to print them off a picture or show them the X-ray so they can visualize where the injury's been, um, see that it's well-secured, gain some confidence that actually it is all right to get up and walk um, and go from there.
0: Yeah. I guess for me, um, nutrition's a big thing. my colleague Hannah Seymour from Fiona Stanley, I, I, I very much like her approach of everything out, everyone up um, in terms of just lines out, uh, reduce the oxygen, catheter out. Um, I, I'm never quite sure why we still catheterize males in particular for hip fracture surgery. It's unnecessary um, and we run into people with uh, a large prostates going into retention when we remove the catheters. But you know everything out, everyone up, a very nice message, very simple message that we could all um, look at. And then I, I guess the nutrition is a big thing uh, for me. So I know you're aware, Sarah, but, uh, but our audience may not be, that we recently completed that sprint audit looking at, at nutrition. Um, and we found that of those who were assessed, and there are a lot of people who are not assessed um, in terms of nutritional status, but if they were assessed, 3 in 10 are malnourished, and if you are malnourished, only 50% have any form of plan put in place. So there's a strong message there that we probably are not focusing enough on what what really is a basic essential um, of care. You've already alluded to the idea fasting should be minimised, and I absolutely um, agree with that. We really should be using clear fluids up until a couple of hours um, prior to surgery, and that includes those high-carb, Dex drinks. Um, but if the if the listeners haven't listened to our previous podcast, Sip Till Send, really great piece of work coming out from an anaesthetist in Scotland, where we're really pushing the boundaries and saying actually we should be giving people fluids right up until they are called to go down to the operating theatre. We're not talking large amounts, you know, 30, 40 mils an hour, but allowing people to to just sip on water. Uh, right up until the point um, of going to theatres. And then having available to you um, snacks and finger foods, particularly for the cognitively impaired. So you've highlighted the cognitively impaired as the ones we really do need to get on and operate. Um, Putting three big meals in front of frail older people often doesn't work terribly well. So, So having access to snacks, finger foods for people with cognitive impairment, and encouraging people to graze small amounts um, frequently. I certainly have access to a fridge um, on the ward where I have access to flavoured milk, strawberry milk, coffee, iced coffee, chocolate milk. Um, I can produce yogurts at the drop of a hat, um, cheese and biscuits, so really simple little things but I think they do make a difference. And I think if you are able to lead by example, if the ward sees that you are handing out food to patients that you think it's important, I think it does influence other staff to say, oh, yeah, okay, actually I could do that as well. It's it's important.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing about modelling is, um, is helping people set up for their meals. So, you know, if you're on the wall around, you know, and the tray comes, don't just walk away, you know, take the lids off, set the patient up, you know, check that they've got all they want. Peel um, off the
0: labels that are really hard to uh, peel off. Oh. Correct,
1: yeah. And, and you know, I say to patients, you know, if you've not got any petrol in the tank, you're not going to go. So here we are asking people to recover from an operation. Uh, they really do need that energy and, and food in them.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. All right, and then the discharge process um, and secondary fracture prevention, your top tip? Uh,
1: so... Uh, I think, so thinking about why this person's fallen. So, you know, helping somebody get through their acute period is is important, but it's only part of the story really uh, because we want to prevent the next fracture. Uh, So there's really two aspects to that. Uh, One is getting patients started on bone protection medication, and the other is thinking about why this fall has happened uh, and what what management strategies, um, what treatment needs to be put in place. So if I start with the osteoporosis, we know that uh, uh, starting patients in hospital um, does help with compliance. Um, And what our recent uh, sprint audit for bone protection medication has shown us is that the practices are quite different in both Australia and New Zealand. Um, but my practice is certainly to get patients started on vitamin D. So in New Zealand, we don't test. Um, we could, but they're all low. So we just get on and t- uh, treat anyway. Um, we're fortunate to have a monthly preparation, and it's the easiest sell for a patient for any medication that I prescribe. Uh, and then ideally, we give this bisphosphonate uh, before uh, patients discharged home. So for many patients, that's in the rehab setting. But for those patients that we can't capture, referring them onto fracture liaison uh, so that we know that we can try and close that loop for osteoporosis treatment. Um, For the falls prevention, I think, um, I mean, that's a talk in itself, but I think simply looking at what medications might be contributing to a fall, uh, making sure you've looked for postural hypotension uh, and then having a plan to get a patient into strength and balance program uh, as part of their
0: recovery. Yeah, uh, when you refer to that uh, Sprint Order and Bow medication, um, there are stark differences in in some of the practices between Australia and New Zealand. And there are things that we need to learn from that. I mean, you refer to having access to the 50,000 international unit um, of vitamin D, which, which is available in some places in Australia, but not widely. Um, available, but that was that was the starkest part of that um, review for me. Um, I, I think in Australia we do a large amount of testing of vitamin D and there are then subsequent delays in terms of getting people on treatment. So uh, I think there's something we can learn from New Zealand from that uh, sprint audit. Um, uh, I guess for me, when we're talking about expert tips, um, this, is a, this is a tip, but I can't say that I do it terribly well myself, is prems, so we, we are very acute focused for hip fracture care, um, and we have standards um, that we think if we adhere to, we probably deliver better outcomes for patients, and that's and that's almost certainly um, true. But but I think it is really important to ask patients what their experience of their care was like, um, because the only way we really can. Improve care is to understand where the deficits are. Now, we can measure in terms of the registry, but does that mean that the patient's experience of their care was, was great? I, I don't think it does necessarily. Um, so I actually think we should be doing more in the space of, of, of PREMS. And, uh, and our listeners won't, won't be aware, I'm sure, at this point in time, but, but we are doing some work called My Hip, My Voice, um, so we have some Commonwealth funded money um, this year to start looking at what the patient experience is of hip fracture care, what matters to them um, and how we can better align what we think to be good quality care uh, with what their expectations and experience is.
1: So, Jackie, okay. I, I agree that um, our consumers, I think, are such a valuable resource. And we, yeah, we need to look for more opportunities to learn from them. Um, it's often very telling what they have to tell us. Um, it does, you know, often make you think and reflect on your own practice.
0: I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think if we ask, we will get told things that we don't necessarily want to hear, as well. But if we are serious about being patient centred, and that's what we should be doing, we just have yeah. to do it. Agree. <laughs> yeah. All right, the last the last little section. Top tip, Sarah, for other disciplines. Uh, I think if I was going to
1: give one tip. I think uh, other disciplines to have a look at the medications patients are on, um, because that can cover a range of areas that I've already talked about. So, uh, are there medications that might be contributing to falls potentially? Uh, is the patient on uh, appropriate, regular, adequate pain relief, uh, and has uh, have the you know bone protection medication been started or at least considered? So, if I was going to do one thing, it would be to when I see a patient to make sure that I take the time to have a look at their medication chart and have a think about
0: that. And my tip, um, a very biased one, of course, uh, is to pick up or open the ANZ Hip Fracture Registry report and look through the report and see areas where you are not doing well. So celebrate the areas that you're doing well, but look for the areas that you're not doing well on and focus on quality improvement initiatives in that area. Sarah, thanks very much for joining us um, today. And for our listeners, a quick summary of our Hipcast top tips. Trust families and manage expectations from the outset. See the bigger picture. Get the bigger picture from the beginning. Get on and operate. Early surgery for the vast majority is what we should be aiming for. The day after surgery, everything out, everyone up. Prevent the next fracture through falls and treatment of bone health. And finally, ask the patient what the experience was from their perspective. For our listeners, the resources that we have mentioned, they will be um, available in the episode notes. So until next time, listeners, stay hip.